From the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C., I'm Michael Sobolik, fellow in Indo-Pacific Studies, and you're listening to Great Power Podcast. It's an inside look into a world increasingly defined by great powers like the United States and China and others like Russia. It's a forum where national security experts explore how these adversaries threaten the U.S. And it's also a hub for crafting strategies to protect the American people. This is episode two, the past, present, and future of Taiwan. When we think about potential military flashpoints in the world, a number of hotspots come to mind. Russia's appetites in Eastern Europe, Iran's regional designs, the tinderbox that is the Korean Peninsula, and percolating tensions in the South China Sea. Today, however, one potential flashpoint is capturing the attention and concern of policymakers around the world, the Taiwan Strait. Taiwan is an island roughly the size of Maryland with a population of about 24 million people. Its government, the Republic of China, lost the Chinese Civil War seven years ago to Mao Zedong and the Chinese Communist Party, and subsequently fled to Taiwan, roughly 100 miles off China's coast. Over time, Taiwan has developed a robust economy, a unique political identity, and its own system of government that eventually transformed into a thriving democracy. From the perspective of the CCP, however, Taiwan is not a sovereign nation. Beijing sees Taipei as a renegade province that once belonged to China and hence must be reunified by force if necessary. The mission to invade and conquer Taiwan has guided the modernization and training of China's military, the People's Liberation Army, for decades, to the point that some in America's military brass are beginning to raise the possibility of China making a move on Taiwan in the next few years. Wrapped up in this tension is the fundamental question of America's role in the matter. Why does the fate of Taiwan matter to the United States? How would a Chinese invasion of Taiwan or aggressive actions that fall short of war impact our national interests and values? Under what circumstances would we enter a war to save Taiwan? What would it take to prevent one in the first place? These questions reveal the highly complex and highly ambiguous nature of Taiwan's future. But sorting through them is critical, particularly for Americans who are living in a 21st century world increasingly marked by great power competition. To weigh these questions, I'm joined on today's episode of the podcast by my friend Russell Shao, the Executive Director of Global Taiwan Institute, Senior Fellow at Jamestown Foundation, and Adjunct Fellow at the Pacific Forum. He previously served as a Senior Research Fellow at the Project 2049 Institute and National Security Fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Prior to these positions, he was the editor of China Brief at the Jamestown Foundation and a special assistant in the International Cooperation Department at the Taiwan Foundation for Democracy. Russell, it is fantastic to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me on the show, Michael. Glad to be here. Okay, Russell, let's dive right in here. Taiwan policy is notoriously complex and ambiguous. It's comprised of carefully, meticulously crafted diplomatic communiques, statutes, and assurances, and and they all mean incredibly specific things. But before we get down into the weeds, I'd like to start with a broad overview of why Taiwan matters. 
and take that, taking that in three directions in particular. Number one, why Taiwan matters to China, why it matters to the United States. And then finally, this is quite frankly, probably the most important one, why it matters so much to the Taiwanese people themselves. Well, okay, so let me take those uh, three parts separately. The first of which for China, I think you already outlined in your introduction, and that is that Beijing sees Taiwan as one of the last remaining vestige of an unfinished Chinese civil war that the Communist Party fought against the Nationalist Party, which then led to the Communist Party establishing the People's Republic of China in 1949, and then the Nationalist Party establishing the Republic of China on Taiwan in the same year. To make a long story short, what ensued was an intense international diplomatic competition between Beijing and Taipei for recognition. This ties into the second factor that I think is still very relevant to why Taiwan matters for the Chinese Communist Party, and that is for the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party. I think it's no exaggeration to say that the reference to the 100 years of humiliation under China, that it still plays a very uh, important psychological role in how the Chinese Communist Party frames its legitimacy in revitalizing or rejuvenating the Chinese nation, and therefore the existence of a Chinese-speaking democracy across the Taiwan Strait lays bare the lie of the Chinese propaganda that somehow the a democracy is incompatible with Chinese culture or, or ways is a definitely a threat, an existential threat, if you will, to the Chinese Communist Party. It is also a prerequisite to the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation that Xi Jinping has laid out as his grand ambition before 2049. Well, for the last several decades, the sources of the CCP's legitimacy rested upon economic growth. I think that that pillar of its ability to shore up its legitimacy has grown increasingly thin. It's an irony, actually. I think it's worth pointing out that somehow that that source of legitimacy had a lot to do with the fact that the United States and Taiwan, for that matter, actually helped a great deal in facilitating when China began opening up in the 80s under Deng Xiaoping. But I think we can say that for a more in-depth discussion about China. But I think increasingly now, after the economic legitimacy component has grown increasingly thin in terms of why the Chinese people need to support the party. We're starting to see now, especially under Xi Jinping, it gravitates towards a more ideological and nationalistic elements of the legitimacy. And so to appeal to this sort of pathos of the Chinese people of unifying Taiwan with the motherland is an effort to, or for the Chinese communists to short the legitimacy during this period of time. And finally, of course, is the geostrategic element of unifying Taiwan. I think in a lot of analysis written by researchers, military researchers, the the role that, you know, the geographic role of Taiwan is critical for its ability to project its power out out into the Western Pacific. For the United States, I think it's a question of credibility. U.S. alliance systems built up after the Cold War, you know, helped to ensure peace and stability in the Western Pacific. And while the United States no longer has a defense treaty with Taiwan, it maintains a very robust security and economic and political partnership with Taiwan that arguably is stronger than many countries with which it has diplomatic ties with across the world. And that the absorption of Taiwan, now a vibrant democratic system that shares values with the United States and the 
in a liberal world, I can really see it undermining a great deal of U.S. credibility, particularly in the area of conventional deterrence of, of Beijing, which obviously is the largest great power in the Western Pacific, is permitted to have its way and incorporate Taiwan under the People's Republic of China. I think secondly, it's the fact, as I've alluded to earlier, it's about democracy. It's about shared values. And I don't think it's platitude to say that those are increasingly even more essential elements for U.S. foreign policy in the emerging world order. The fact that Taiwan is this vibrant Chinese-speaking democracy and shares similar values to the United States, that also is at the front line of this growing authoritarian encroachment of countries like China, like Russia, and Iran, for that matter. You know, that that, that is a, an important partner that the United States should support in, in this global contest. And thirdly, it, it comes back to also the geostrategic element, which is the critical placement of Taiwan in the first island chain. It's important for the sea lines of communication for maritime powers in the Indo-Pacific region. It is, if you will, for a pretty long-used analogy, a cork in the bottle that really can help to contain China's growing military capabilities, as well as, as a means for projecting U.S. influence in the Western Pacific as well. So those are the three elements for the United States. And finally, I think for Taiwan, it's really clear as day is why this is such an essential question for the Taiwanese people, because this really is affecting their way of life, right? I mean, just look at Hong Kong. Right. Look at what's happening in Hong Kong right now under the one country, two systems model that the PRC has applied to Hong Kong. Let's remember also that this is the same model that the one country, two system is the same model that General Secretary Xi Jinping proposes for the, for the model of unification of Taiwan with the PRC. And I think it is unquestionable why the people of Taiwan would question whether or not there could be any reasonable assumption that what's happening in Hong Kong now could not happen to Taiwan in the future, should it agree to unify with the PRC. I think any sort of expectation that somehow that Beijing could be trusted in living up to its agreements are, have been shattered by the fact of daily corrosion of freedom in Hong Kong, as well as really just the dismantling of Hong Kong's autonomy. And while I think the cases of Taiwan and Hong Kong are indeed different, I think given in, in Beijing's eyes, at least in terms of how it's formulated its policy, how it's approached the issue of Taiwan and its overall policy, continued emphasis on the one country, two systems model for unification just makes it you know, really an impalpable solution for cross-strait differences. So I think that's really helpful. And I think that threads the needle of getting some context without jumping down the rabbit hole too dark. Uh, on the subject of jumping down the rabbit hole, though, that's okay. exactly what I'm about to, to ask you to do now. And I think what we can do is hopefully have a bit of a rapid fire where I pose a few basic questions to you, probably about three or four, that once we get to the end of them, we'll have the scope of, of the, the scaffolding or the skeleton that make up America's policy towards Taiwan. So let, let's start our rapid fire questions here with something called America's one China policy. This is something that journalists will reference, write about a lot. You'll hear American officials from the State Department regularly reference this. What is America's one China policy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question, Michael. I ask myself that uh, every day as well. Um, but, you know, honestly, at the risk of sounding glib, I, I don't 
think anyone can honestly tell you that they know what the U.S. one China policy is. I think even U.S. officials will not tell you necessarily or define what the U.S. one China policy is. The clearest articulation to date that I'm aware of by a senior U.S. official was actually back in 2004, and this was then Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs James Kelly in a congressional testimony, and he responded to a question by one of the congressmen, and he said about the U.S. One China policy, "I can tell you what it is not. It is not the One China policy or the One China principle." That Beijing suggests, and it may not be the definitions that some would have in Taiwan, but it does convey a meaning of solidarity of a kind among the people on both sides of the straits. That has been our policy for a very long time. And again, that is, I think, the clearest articulation to date of what the U.S. one-China policy is not. What it may suggest is also reflected in the 1970 communique, the Shanghai communique. Between the United States and the People's Republic of China, in which the United States acknowledges acknowledges the Chinese position that all Chinese on either side of the Taiwan Strait maintain there is but one China. However, I think as any good student of English、uh, should quickly recognize that acknowledge does not mean accept, right? And that is a very important distinction there in terms of how the United States has. Approached the One China policy. Now, in practice, what it has meant since 1979 is that the United States has maintained formal diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China and has maintained robust unofficial relations with Taiwan. Following successive administrations' guidances, with the six assurances as well, the United States has not agreed to take any position regarding sovereignty. Over Taiwan, and I think that that is holistically how I would describe the U.S. one-China policy. I guess what I'm hearing from you is that America's policy towards Taiwan has been inherently ambiguous for decades, and I, I want to zero in on one particular element of that policy: the Taiwan Relations Act. Which was one of those rare instances over many, many decades where the United States actually sought. To bring a certain amount of clarity back into the relationship after Jimmy Carter at the time switched diplomatic recognition, which I think you mentioned from Taipei to Beijing. So, could you walk us through the Taiwan Relations Act, why Congress felt it was necessary, and what this law has done over the successive decades since then? Yeah, really, it's a it's a phenomenal piece of legislation that was passed in 1979. Essentially, it was reaction of Congress's outrage with President Carter's sudden decision to establish diplomatic recognition with the People's Republic of China, and, and Congress responded by putting forward the Taiwan Relations Act in large part. As a reaction to a barebone legislation、uh, that the Carter administration had put forward, but this was seen by Congress as being woefully inadequate and not up to the task of really fulfilling U.S. longstanding commitments, you know, to the people of Taiwan. And therefore, Congress put forward the Taiwan Relations Act 
For the purposes of this conversation, I think there are probably three that warrants the most attention. And one, which is the most commonly referenced provision within the Taiwan Relations Act, is an obligation on the part of the United States to provide arms and services of defensive character to Taiwan to ensure that it has the means to defend itself. The second of which is, it's not just an obligation to Taiwan, it actually imposes an obligation on the United States as well, which is the United States should maintain the capacity to resist the use of force and other forms of coercion against Taiwan. So making sure that the United States has the capabilities and the capacity to resist China's use of force is, is an obligation on, on the U.S. part on making sure that, that there are the necessary investments and capabilities are, are there to ensure that you know the United States can come to Taiwan's defense if it decides to do so. The third of which I think is something that is perhaps also not as frequently referenced but should, is that it should make clear that the U.S. decision to establish diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China rests upon the expectation that the future of Taiwan would be determined by peaceful means. And I think that that element of this domestic law is the basis upon which we're seeing now the former Trump administration and now the Biden administration taking measures to ensuring that the Beijing's actions have consequences. And so fast forward now, Taiwan Relations Act has remained the legal foundation upon which successive legislations have been passed to broaden out the relationship between United States and Taiwan. And that includes now more recently legislation like the Taiwan Travel Act that authorizes high-level senior official contacts between the United States and Taiwan, and also the Taipei Act, which really helps to expand the diplomatic contact between the United States and Taiwan and helping to really reinforce Taiwan's international space. These legislations and more and what they offer, again, is a broader legal authorization underpinning of U.S. policy towards Taiwan that will, at the very least, not be left entirely to the vagaries of U.S. politics, to have a sort of legal foundation upon which a successive executive branch authorities would then be able to either reinforce its actions with regards to supporting Taiwan, or to also address future administration if there are ever any inclinations to gravitate away from U.S. commitments to Taiwan to address these from a legal standpoint of what the role of Congress in serving as a check and balance to executive authority. I mean, it harkens back again to the, to the days of 1970s um, when there was huge, robust debate in Congress especially following the break of diplomatic recognition where, you know, even Congress, uh, members of Congress through the government in order uh, to, to check whether or not the executive branch has the type of the authority to switch diplomatic recognition without the authority of, without passing it to Congress. And so I think, again, it's a very complex balance and has a lot of nuances and remains a very central component of U.S. policy towards Taiwan. I think now it's helpful to briefly step back and, and order everything we're talking about chronologically here. So you started this portion of our conversation with the One China policy, which was informally established in 1972 when Nixon and Mao met in China for the first time. Uh, fast forward to 1979, not that many years after, where, as you just laid out, the diplomatic switch happened. 
And then shortly thereafter, the Taiwan Relations Act uh, was passed. Now I want to jump ahead just a few years to 1982. You mentioned the six assurances. Spend maybe just a couple of minutes unpacking what this is, but because I think members of Congress have increasingly been referencing this particular document, which is really short, but it's been getting increased attention from both Democrats and Republicans on the Hill. And we're even starting to hear the Biden administration and the previous administration reference it more and more. So what is it? Why is it so consequential? Basically, in 1982, President Reagan, who was personally concerned with the implications of what a third communique with the People's Republic of China would mean as Beijing was pressing incredibly hard to try to get a commitment from the United States to completely end arms sales to Taiwan, which would essentially force Taiwan to fend for itself against any PRC military encroachment against it. And and as a result of trying to assure Taiwan that a third communique would not mean any significant scale back of U.S. military commitments to Taiwan to undo, perhaps superimpose restrictions upon U.S. commitment to Taiwan's acquisition of arms and services to defend itself, that it basically provided uh, six assurances as conveyed to Taiwan by President Reagan. And those six assurances are dealing with not having agreed to a date to end arms sales to Taiwan, which was obviously a matter of great concern to what would be negotiated in the third communique, that it would not agree to any prior consultations on arms sales with the PRC. Third, it would not agree to any mediation role in the role of the United States in in Taiwan Strait. The United States has not agreed to revise the Taiwan Relations Act. The United States has not agreed to take any position regarding sovereignty over Taiwan. And finally, the United States will not pressure Taiwan to enter into negotiations with the People's Republic of China. So these six assurances provide the necessary political assurances to Taipei a commitment at the very highest level of the U.S. government and the executive branch, ensuring its understanding and implementation of the joint communique would not depend upon these core areas and assurances that it has provided to Taiwan. And furthermore, I think it's also noteworthy that President Reagan had also provided some internal guidance in terms of how these the implementation and what the U.S. executive understanding at the highest level in terms of what are the obligations of the United States under the third communique. Firstly, that rests entirely on the understanding of PRC's use of peaceful means to achieve its ends with Taiwan. And secondly, is that the qualitative and quantitative aspects of arms that are provided to Taiwan also must be maintained. So these are six assurances now are, are essential to, in terms of making sure that those, those security commitments that have been provided through the Taiwan Relations Act are further supplemented by these assurances that provide a greater foundation for more continuity in U.S. policy towards Taiwan. Okay, so final detail question about policy, then we're going to go back big picture after this. Strategic ambiguity. This concept permeates everything you have been talking about, and and you've briefly touched on it here and there. This longstanding attitude or posture towards Taiwan and also towards China, for that matter. So strategic ambiguity, what is it? 
I like your description of it as a posture. I perhaps would use a tactical approach uh, in, um, of dual deterrence vis-a-vis China and Taiwan. I think with regards to China, it is to deter China from militarily invading Taiwan by forcing it to consider the possibility of U.S. intervention in the event of a military invasion, which of course would make any such consideration far more costly and and potentially catastrophic. And secondly, also, it is a means to, for a period of time, deter Taipei from then, you know, under uh, Chiang Kai-shek from retaking the mainland. While those days are long gone now, where I don't think there are any real serious concerns that perhaps Taipei would one day invade China, that dual deterrence has shifted to a position that is intended to deter Taipei from taking any unilateral action, like a de jure declaration of independence that Beijing has said it is a, a, a red line for it to take military action against Taiwan. Like you referenced earlier, strategic ambiguity is not only directed at China, but it's also directed to Taiwan. And that is the basic explanation for the posture of strategic ambiguity that the United States has maintained for decades. And just to be clear, for strategic ambiguity, how certain or uncertain would America's involvement in a conflict involving Taiwan be? If we say we have an ambiguous posture, how certain or uncertain are they about what we would do if they moved on Taiwan? That's an excellent question because that suggests that a decision to invade Taiwan is not just a military consideration, it's also a political consideration on the part of Beijing. And that's absolutely critical, I think, in in assessing the likelihood of a Chinese decision to invade Taiwan, which would be specific to both domestic political considerations, but also external considerations like the credibility of U.S. commitment to come to Taiwan's defense in the event of an invasion of Taiwan. So in the event of perceived U.S. involvement, I think greater clarity to come to Taiwan's defense would inject a greater deal of uncertainty in the part of Beijing in terms of whether or not it should take that catastrophic decision of having to invade Taiwan. But taking a step back a little bit, you know, I, I think this debate about moving towards uh, greater clarity also is important because it is intended to also ensure that Beijing does not get more emboldened by the perception that the United States may not intervene in a conflict over Taiwan and therefore would embolden it to make that decision to invade. And so, I mean, clarity on that front could inject greater political considerations on the part of Beijing, but also to align U.S. allies and partners that could bring greater pressure upon Beijing to deter Beijing from making those decisions. So picking up on that exact thread for how the CCP calculates this stuff, one of the most interesting stories over the past year, and and I guess more precisely over the past few months, has been this uptick in PLA belligerence towards Taiwan. And I think this is most clearly quantified in the air sorties that China's fighter jets have been sending into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. 
And this also is met with increased political rhetoric from Beijing. It's also interesting to know, perhaps in response to that, not only is the United States meeting that with some high level rhetoric of their own, but we're seeing some new signals from Japan and Australia on this matter. I wonder if if you could spend a few minutes leaving some of these details that we've been down in the weeds on and going big picture, looking at the strategic landscape moving forward. Uh, And I think it's interesting you just mentioned that if we were to change our posture and perhaps bring more clarity, that could complicate Beijing's planning. Maybe take a look at what's happening now. It's been happening over the past few months. And and I'd be curious to hear your take on, on where the situation is. Do you think the United States is perhaps moving in the direction of greater clarity? Do you think Beijing is trying to preempt a move like that with some of these increasingly belligerent actions? Do you see the involvement of uh, allies like Japan and Australia as trying to tip the scales in either direction? How do you see all this stuff? My sense is that the U.S. approach on strategic ambiguity towards the defense of Taiwan is gradually and incrementally shifting to greater clarity. And while there is not an explicit commitment to defend Taiwan at this moment, the approach taken by the former administration as well as this current administration with regards to Taiwan's defense is looking at it, I think, through a more integrated fashion that not only looks at military tools of deterrence, but also non-military tools of deterrence. And while I think it's essential that we do have the military tools available to deter Beijing, and that would be the most essential, while in peacetime, I think the non-military tools to deter Beijing from taking any adventurous decision or maybe looking at it from a window of opportunity that it could potentially strike Taiwan, that a holistic integrated approach that leverages non-military tools are, are, are critical to pushing back against Beijing's efforts to militarily intimidate and potentially, if it assesses political and military considerations, to take action against Taiwan. Because by bringing in, as you referenced earlier, the growing concerns of regional allies and partners of the United States, like Japan, like Australia, uh, you know, for that matter, just on the topic of Japan, I think it's quite notable that the defense minister of, of Japan have highlighted the peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait not only directly with regards to its relevance for Japan's security, but also in international engagements that it's had, say, for example, in Vietnam and other regional countries, to underscore the international nature of what a conflict over Taiwan would mean, not as a sort of an isolated conflict that would somehow be contained in the Taiwan Strait area, but could have grave consequences to the Western Pacific and, and growing calls also from from Australia, I think the most critical security partner and longstanding security ally of the United States, whom the, I think the defense minister just most recently stated that it would be inconceivable that if the United States you know, were to decide to intervene in a, a military conflict in the Taiwan Strait, that you know, the Australia would not be there. And all of that, I think, really has to give pause to Beijing when it thinks that in the event that if it decides to invade Taiwan, it would not just be facing 
the United States, but also Japan, which of course, U.S. bases in Japan and U.S. Japanese forces would have to be part of the response. At the end of it, the cost to Beijing to decide to invade Taiwan is huge because if, if it were to fail, it would also mean the collapse of the Chinese Communist Party. So I think coming back to the question of the U.S. approach to strategic clarity is that the United States is strategically clear in the sense that you cannot count on the United States doing nothing in the event of a, mili uh, of a military conflict over Taiwan. But, you know, how the United States will respond, you know, I think to, to a certain degree will remain somewhat ambiguous. Whether or not there will be in the future or needs to be in the future, a move towards strategic clarity, I think that would depend, I think, a great deal on the credibility of Chinese military threats and the imminence of those military threats against Taiwan. But for now, I think many steps taken in dealing with for this deterrence in an integrated fashion, I think highlights the importance of internationalizing the Taiwan Strait issue. That is an element that I think can be further developed and, and utilized to try to complicate Beijing's political consideration about taking any type of military action, limited or otherwise as well. Fantastic expose and also a fantastic segue into our final question, which is the Biden administration, which uh, themselves are in the process of, of wading through all of these considerations. How would you assess the Biden administration's Taiwan policy so far? You know, on the first diplomatic front, I, you know, I give the administration high marks in actually continuing the approach of the former administration in working closely with allies and, and partners to shore up port for Taiwan against the face of China's growing belligerence. You know, I think the, the statements that came out of the G7 meetings early this year, unprecedented in highlighting peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait, are very important to highlight the international community's concern about the actions taken by Beijing with regards to Taiwan. Clearly, the leader summit between the United States and Japan, which also underscored the peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. And the leader's statement is also very indicative of the international approach to dealing with the issues of, of the Taiwan Strait. To include also statements made with the ROK as well, that also included provisions with and, and Australia, you know, and it goes on, I think, you know, in terms of this multilateral approach that the Biden administration has taken. And in some ways, you know, it, perhaps it has, you know, the Biden administration has a bit less baggage on its shoulders in terms of trying to push forward this type of approach to bring in more partners and allies into this issue. So I do give you know, the administration high marks into the international diplomatic front, and I hope to see that continue uh, on in this administration in, again, working allies and partners in, in international for us to, to better integrate Taiwan into the international community. This could have potentially a deterrent effect on, on Beijing because a more internationally wedded Taiwan would elicit, I think, uh, a greater responses from the national community should Beijing take military action against it. So I think this is perhaps, you know, an indirect way in which these types of international engagements and diplomatic efforts do have, I think, a, a quite a tangible, non-necessarily solely political type of benefit 
for symbolic benefit. Some, you know, I know that occasionally people, you know, are, are somewhat divisive of what are, you know, what may be considered symbolic efforts of to, to improve Taiwan's international standing, but that actually it does have substantive effects in terms of, you know, getting more buy-in from the international community that is more aware of and attached to Taiwan security that they would be more likely to respond to a, a military conflict over Taiwan in a manner that could create greater complications for Beijing. I think on the issue of our hard power deterrence, I you know I think it's too early to say right now in terms of really where the administration is going in terms of investing in the type of capabilities that it needs in the near term to maintain the capacity right to resist the use of force and other forms of coercion against Taiwan. The administration right now is in the process of formulating and releasing its national defense strategy. And hopefully the administration is taking into serious consideration the type of capabilities and capacity that the United States needs in order to push back against the dire scenarios that have been painted in various war games in which the United States has reportedly failed miserably in scenarios involving Taiwan's defense. And I think perhaps that should be an important wake-up call to U.S. defense planners in terms of understanding what are the type of capabilities and the means that the United States needs to actually intervene credibly in those scenarios and that such investments that are, are being made immediately to deter Beijing from taking the type of military action against Taiwan. Should it consider that there is a fleeting window of opportunity for it to take such action? You know, I'm not passing judgment on whether or not I think that there is such a fleeting window within the near term. But nevertheless, I think what we need to do is to make sure that we are able to complicate as much as possible Beijing's political and military considerations in making such a decision. While I don't think it's a decision on which rests solely on China's military capability, it's not as if okay, we, when we have this, these capabilities, we will invade Taiwan. I don't think it's that simple. It certainly has a lot of political considerations as well that will also factor in. But that military balance, that correlation of forces is going to be an important factor. But we need to be able to play on multiple chessboards here in terms of making sure that we're able to check them in both the political space as well as in the military space to ensure that that decision, should it ever make it, would be the most difficult one. That today is not the day on which that they would make that, ultimately make that decision. I think you're absolutely right. I think that forestalling the day and making sure that the day never arrives has to be the center point of where United States policy is. And I think you've not only made that case, I think you've done a lot of helpful educating as well and brought in a lot of context to shine a whole lot of light on why that makes sense. So, hey, Russell, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for your expertise and thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you very much, Michael. A pleasure to be here with you. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a rating or review. To learn more about AFPC's research, visit us online at afpc.org. For questions or comments, you can reach me at greatpowerpod at afpc.org. I'm Michael Sobolik, and you've been listening to Great Power Podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time.